I would start this week's podcast with some type of pirate monologue filled with fancy pirate catchphrases like cleave him to the brisket or dead man tell no tales or even listen up scurvy land lovers and scallywags. But I'm going to spare you the torture of my pirate imitation and just say this week is all about clean, wholesome Disney space pirates. I'm Troy Sauer. Brad Anderson. Arr, shiver me timbers. This be not the bomb podcast, you lily-livered shark bit. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. It's all right, buddy. Is this the uh, Talk Like a Pirate episode? Uh, like Steve the Pirate from Dodgeball? Yeah, I, <clears throat> I don't think I could do it. I mean, if somebody truly asked me to talk like a pirate for more than five minutes, I I, I couldn't do it. I don't know about you. Uh, yeah, I... Uh, My voice would just give out. Yeah, I, I have to talk too much at work. And if I, had to, if, I had, <laughs> if I didn't have a voice and I was like, well, because I was doing this thing where I was talking like a pirate for... Mm, two hours they would look at me like i'm crazy already so yeah true well this is the last i guess film of our sci-fi animation marathon we've been doing so what are we talking about tonight we were talking about 2002's walt disney film treasure planet the third iteration of the treasure <laughs> island uh mythos so is this a first time watch for you it was it was this was actually well all the way through i've seen it multiple times through like the first 40 minutes or so um full disclosure my son thinks this movie's kind of boring so we've tried to watch it a few times but he just doesn't get into it okay so but even beforehand like theatrically nothing like that no it came out when i was a senior in high school and cool brad was not seeing uh no disney movie in the theater so oh, really so you would have lost like street credit if you if they caught you in the theater seeing Treasure oh yes Planet. yes i i avoided films like this like the plague, uh, when I was, you know, a senior, when I was 18 years old. So you're not one of those grown guys that anything Disney you run out and see. No, I don't really have a nostalgia for Disney at all. Um, my cartoons when I was growing up were more, uh, a little bit more anime and a little bit, you know, like Akira and things like that. Not, uh, and not like, Lion King or Aladdin or anything like I saw those and Bambi, like all those ones I was seeing things like back to the future and legend and, you know, those weird movies yeah, also yeah. like, you know, and uh, so Disney really doesn't hold that much of a nostalgia for me now, like star Wars has like turned into a Disney property, but I still don't think of it as a Disney property. Like to me, it's 20th century Fox. Um, so I still don't have that, kind of association with disney and star wars just yet but you know whatever um what about you are, are are you a disney guy i don't i don't know if i'm a disney guy i've always appreciated disney animation so even it, whatever came out 
I would probably go and see just because I really appreciated, especially, you know, 80s, 90s uh, hand-drawn animation. Now, towards the back end of the 90s, you know, they start incorporating the hand-drawn with the CGI, kind of like the movie yep. we're talking about tonight. Yep. And then Pixar comes along. But I've always... Um, that's the weird thing. Like, anime, I'm not as versed probably as you are, but I've always enjoyed the heavy hitters, and I've always enjoyed a lot of the Disney films. But most Disney films, like the the big ones that everybody talks about, are the animated Disney musicals. So your Aladdin... Uh, the Lion King, Beauty, you know, for a while there, Little Mermaid, they had a streak where they were just printing money with these Disney musicals. Mostly like princess, the princess kind of era. Yes, absolutely. But I, I mean, I got to tell you, I, I remember films like, you know, 101 Dalmatians, uh, The Rescuers, Rescuers Down Under, which I liked a lot. There actually surprisingly are a lot of non-musical Disney animated films, and that's where Treasure Planet falls in, right? Yeah, there is no there is music in it, but characters do not bust out into song um, like you would expect. There are parts where you're like, oh, this is where the character goes off and and starts singing, and no, someone else starts singing that's uh, not the character. So yeah, this is not a musical at all. Okay, so I have a question for you. I believe I, when I was looking at this, and you're going to ask me this question, yes, because I did my homework. Oh, okay. I believe there's about 15 Disney non-musical animated films. Yeah, I, I was surprised at that too. I thought there was a handful. But when you yeah. go through the list, there was a lot more than I remembered even. And surprisingly, um, the Treasure Planet is a first-time watch for me. I had never seen it, and, and quite honestly, I went back and looked at the trailer. The, the poster looked kind of cool, but there was something about when they were advertising this thing in the trailer, I, I looked at it and said, oh, that looks like Atlantis, the one that they did a few years mm -hmm. before, yep. and was never interested in watching this thing. As a matter of fact, I would have never watched this thing had you not picked it for the show, but I had a question just to kind of kick things off. Do you have a favorite Disney animated non-musical movie out there? Uh, I would say it's probably Wreck-It Ralph. For me, okay. Um, I like just, I mean, the video game aspect of it. Um, John C. Riley, I think, is really great as Ralph. Um, I like the story. Uh, I don't like the second one very much at all, but I think that first one is a classic that I have watched numerous times uh, because I have kids, and it really holds up after repeat viewings. Um, I would say an honorable mention for me is also Zootopia. Yes, I like Zootopia quite I a bit. Love a lot that film too. Yeah. Um, Based on Stephen uh, Bateman's uh, performance as the Fox, like that for me is like one of the best voice performances. So those two are kind of the two standouts for me. I thought it was Zootopia for me because I, I just have a love for that film. I mean, it's a it's a cool little animated detective film that Disney managed to pull off. And then yep. the others that I liked, you know, speaking of detectives, I always liked the Great Mouse Detective. I like the rescuers down under, but there's always one film that I have to say out of all of the Disney films, I have probably watched this one the most, even if you were to throw in the musicals, I've seen this one more than any of the Disney musicals, but I'm going with, um, 2000s, the emperor's new groove. Okay. Uh, is that, does David Spade do the voice of the oh, emperor yeah. in that? So okay. what makes this thing so legendary and cool is you get David Spade, John Goodman, Eartha Kitt, and Patrick Warburton. 
And the four of them together are just comedy gold. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. I never knew I needed a talking llama movie in my life until I saw that film. And there is something about it. It just, it has a zaniness quality, almost Marx brothers like in terms of how the comedy comes at you. Uh-huh. And I never, you know, David Spade, like Joe dirt. I've seen it. I, I'm, I, th- I think I saw it while intoxicated. I might've found it funny then, but I've seen snippets it, of it since. And it's, it doesn't hold it, I mean, if you were watching comedy central in the early two thousands, like you ran across Joe dirt. Yeah. Um, it's problematic, but it does have its moments where it's pretty funny. Now, I don't know if, have you seen the second one? No, the crackle original Joe no. dirt. Nope. There's a sequel. He, yeah. He travels <laughs> through time. Oh boy. Yeah, so if that yeah. tells you anything. I mean, Dave, I, I like David Spade and the, you know, Tommy Boy when he paired up with Chris Farley. Yeah, yeah. Um, was it Just Shoot Me? I kind of enjoyed him on on that show a little bit, but he's he's never been just somebody that I thought was comedic gold and everything that he did. But I got to tell you, everything he does in Emperor's New Groove is fantastic. Like he was born for that character and, and voice. <laughs> he's just born for voicing llamas in general, so get that man more llama work. I, I agree. David Spade should do all of the talking llama movies, hands down. So if they do a Fortnite movie, he will be the llama. Uh, so uh, that all of that, I <laughs> have no idea what you just said. If they Cameron do a what? No, no Fort, Fortnite. Fortnite. Oh, is yeah, that the they, one where they run around and shoot and build bridges or something? Yes. Yeah, that's building and yes. there's, there's llamas in that game. There is. Yeah. Well, yeah. The mascot of the game is a llama. Oh, if I'd known that I might've played cause I kind of have a soft spot for llamas. Um, well, let, Hey, let's talk about tonight's movie. So we're talking about treasure planet. I, it is hard for me to comprehend the, at least on the animated side that any Disney animated film ever bombs. I, I feel like, you know, the lone ranger, the John Carter, some of those big live action productions. I totally see where they would sink a lot of money in. And if, you know, it doesn't click with an audience and it's not going to be a franchise, you know, yeah, I I see that. Right. But they have such an amazing record with the animated films. It boggles my mind that any of these bombed, but this one did, right? Yes. And not only, so we've talked about films that have killed franchises before this killed a medium, uh, for about seven years. So hand-drawn Disney animated films stopped for, I believe seven years after this film was completed. Uh, released. I believe Princess and the Frog was 2009. So there was a seven year gap between. Uh, now they released a few that like were in production as this was happening. Like I think Brother Bear and another one came after this, but essentially all, all work on hand drawn animated films at Disney stopped until uh, Princess and the Frog. Really? Um, okay. Yes. Um, the there was one in the in in production. It was going to be hand drawn. It was called the Ice Princess or the Ice Queen. Uh, they shelved that for a while. That turned into Frozen. Um, so yeah. So this thing killed uh, the way Disney made money for seven years. That's um, crazy. Again, now, like like I said, Brother Bear and stuff was in production, and they couldn't stop it. it was, they had already kind of sunk too much money into it, but. Um, that was kind of the big thing when Princess and the Frog came out. It was like, oh, it's Disney returning to essentially hand-drawn animation. Yeah, um, and, and I guess the thing to keep in mind is most of these Disney projects, we we talked about this right when we started with Iron Giant. You know, Iron Giant had, what, a two-and-a-half, maybe two-year production period? 
Uh-huh. And that was considered extremely rushed in comparison to Tarzan at the time, which had about a five-year production period. So you're absolutely right. Disney will start something and they'll work on it for, you know, four to five years. So if if something goes wrong, that, that sucker is still coming out because of how much money they spent on it. Yeah, yeah. So um, for release on this, it comes out in November, uh, November 27th, 2002, um, right at the... I think this is like the Wednesday before Thanksgiving or right around that Thanksgiving time period. Um, it has at the time, and I believe it still is, was the most expensive hand-drawn animated film um, at $140 million, oh, wow. $140 million. And it opens <laughs> the weekend and it makes $12 million oh my on God. its way to um, 110, so it only makes 38 million dollars domestically. Um, makes 71 internationally. 38 million dollars domestically. A Disney animated film I, makes 38 million dollars. I can't. That believe to me that, was man. the most shocking thing I had seen since we've done this show. It didn't even break 40 million dollars. Didn't break 40 million dollars. And I'm obviously um, it didn't debut because that that's a pretty busy box office weekend. Yeah. So, yeah, it, so it, it obviously it, didn't it debut at number fourth. one. Fourth, okay. So it's, again, we have a lot of stuff coming out in that November time frame. In the first movie I, I name, you're going to say, okay, that's one of the reasons why it didn't uh, make any money. It was Harry Potter and the Chamber oh, of Secrets. Yeah, right there. Which I believe is the second one, right? Is that's it, the second uh, one. Yeah. Um, and then it's Die Another Day. So then you have your dad's going to see James Bond. Uh, Santa Claus 2, which is another family film. And that's a Disney uh, based, film, right? I believe it is. Yeah. Um, of course, it's the sequel, and the first one did a lot of money, and then Treasure Planet comes in fourth. Um, wow. So just so, based on that, I feel like who is ever making this release schedule set it up for failure out of the gate. Yeah, but your hubris at, at Disney too. You're saying we we make money on these hand drawn animated films and. Uh, when we release, people move out of our way. We don't move out of the way for anyone else because uh, we're Disney. And that came back to bite them in the butt. Um, I will tell wow. you that the critics were okay on this film. It was It's at 69% and the audience is 72. So we're right in line with each other. Um, nothing real crazy on like, you know, people declaring this the greatest thing they've ever seen or the worst thing they've ever seen. People were just like, yeah, it's, it's pretty good or eh, it's all right. You know, nothing too crazy. Uh, okay. I did tell you some of the films that came out in November of 2002, but here are the others. We have eight mile, which again was huge, right? That was a big box um, office success. Yep. Um, Harry Potter and the chambers of secrets, uh, died on the day, uh, Friday after next, which, you know, is another kind of big comedy hit. And the remake of Solaris comes out. Which I don't um, think did very well. No, no. I mean, <laughs> the remake of Solaris, I know probably five people out of a hundred knew what Solaris was. I, I saw, saw it in the theater. Yeah, I, saw, I the saw, theater. saw Solaris in the theater. Yeah. So, uh, cause I was pretentious and thought, Oh, I'm seeing Solaris in the theater. Um, but anyway, no, no, November is a pretty busy time for movies. Um, cause they're trying to get it out. You know, before the end of the year, sometimes it's Oscar, but other times, you know, you're getting your film out before the holiday season as well. So it has legs there too. Like Harry Potter, I know all those films have some sort of a Christmas element to them. So they get them out 
and then they, you know, have a Christmas bump as well. So, um, yeah, it, it's weird that we did this one. So like right after Titan AE, because these are literally almost the same exact movie. Um, and we'll get into it, but it's just crazy how familiar this was. Um, but looking at just how much, if you dump a lot more money into it, what you get, um, so anyway, well, yeah. this is how dumb I am. It, it didn't dawn on me until putting notes together. It was okay. We, we decided to pick science fiction animation and go back and, and you were going to pick two and I, I was going to pick two and we didn't know what we were going to pick. So we just both came to the table, but between the four now we've picked one movie from 1999, 2000, 2001 and 2002. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it, it really seemed like a lot of studios were chasing after, you know, maybe the the preteen boy, teenager boy dollars um, with <sighs> these type of properties. Yeah, it really looked like for a while, like our sci-fi adventure films were going to be animated. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, and it's weird. So th- this is the other thing I got to thinking about. And this is a year after Shrek. It's year, yeah. <laughs> so there you so go. So you have to like there's a paradigm shift after Shrek comes out of what people expect when they go see an animated film. And if it doesn't have that humor or doesn't have Smash Mouth, you know, <laughs> singing at you, it's not gonna go over too well. Cause 2001 was like Shrek time. And yeah. after that it was Shrek time uh, for a long time. Well, do you ever, so when we're talking about Disney films or Disney properties, do you ever think about the creative people that sort of bring it to the screen? So as an example, you know, we'll talk about directors for live action films. So we might talk about uh, John Carpenter, Scorsese, you know, any of the heavy hitters. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I know you and I get super excited about who wrote the screenplay or who directed it or even the fight choreography. I mean, we, we talked a lot about Brad Allen who passed this year, but you know, we'll constantly. Okay, talk. time. Can we do yeah. a sidebar real quick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you seen that article going around about the Shang Chi part that borrows from a Jackie Chan? Oh like yes, I was reading that today. I'm like, dude. I, I know that most people don't know who Brad Allen is, but it's like the guy choreographed the same, and it's like that's why because there's a common denominator. Can we please just yep. say Brad Allen? Can, can we just say his name? Can we sidebar your sidebar? Yes, please. So I was reading that article today and I was looking. So it's one of those where it shows up in social media and I'm reading all the posts and everybody's talking about, well, duh. And, you know, whatever reason that they're explaining on why they Jackie borrow Chan from Jackie is a Chan, communist, yeah, whatever, all of blah, that blah, stuff. Blah. Like yeah. I lost all respect. It's social for media. Yep. Yeah, yeah. But at no mention is there a name of Brad Allen. So social justice warrior Troy decides and I never, never comment on this stuff. So I all of a sudden start writing comments like, listen, Brad Allen did the fight choreography. He just passed this year. He was the first non-Asian. to." So I'm giving this whole history lesson oh, wow. on Brad Allen. You did the oh, actually. I did the oh, actually. Listen, <clears throat> Internet, you're getting this all wrong. But yeah, I, I saw that. And uh, okay. again, it's it's a example of how we get, I don't know, fired up about the creative artists behind the live action films. But I got to tell you, when it comes to these Disney animated films, I usually don't know anything about who's doing what behind the scenes on rare occasions. And this is weird. I know about Brad bird simply because I love the iron giant, uh, iron giant so much. And plus he's done mission impossible films, stuff like that. So, 
I'm very much aware of his animated work and what he's directed. But I guess John Lasseter is like the only one just because he's so synonymous with Pixar. Yeah. Um, but I, I get what you're saying. And to me, it's not until afterwards, like I start putting things together and like, oh, these guys did this stretch here. That was very important to Disney. And I think this is where you're going with Musker and Clements. Like, yeah, these guys had a run and basically earned their way to to make uh, Treasure Planet. Um, essentially had to do uh, Hercules as like a as a bounty because the, after the success of Aladdin, they said, if you want to make Treasure Planet that you've been bothering us since 1985 or whatever, you have to do Hercules. And then they basically wrote him a check and the rest is history, as they say. Yeah, and it, but I think it says something about this genre of film, specifically Disney animated films or maybe animated films in general. It's probably more about the property, the concept, uh, the characters, or the story, or or even the toy tie-in or something of that nature. But it really, and it, and it might be that I like for a director of an animated film, I don't know if I understand exactly what they do as much as a director on a real set. Well, if and, I know, and I'm not trying to downplay what they do, I think they're is probably more important because your time is essentially people drawing, and yeah. if that gets scrapped and like. All that's bad. Like they have to, I think directing animated films is probably harder than live action because live action, you can go back and fix things a little bit easier. Animated films, you're like, well, we screwed this up and now we're screwed. Yeah. If you go back uh, and again, I'll, I'll kind of rep for that Iron Giant Blu-ray disc, but there's an amazing documentary about sort of the making of the film. And you can see what an animated director kind of does because they show that process in the background how they'll have these meetings together. They'll go through these animated sequences. He goes up there and he's drawing things on this whiteboard and saying, nope, I need it to be more this, that, or the other. So that they go back and correct the sequence or, you know, they may junk something because it's not working. But yeah, I, I do think it's super difficult to do that job. But again, it goes back to the, I would not know the names Ron Clements or John Musker who co-directed this film simply because when it comes to this type of film, I'm probably more interested on, well, what's the story about or what's, what's the property based on or something of that nature more so than the creatives behind the, uh, the process. And, and that's probably, you know, this is like a treasure Island adaptation essentially. Yeah. It's space pirates. So if if at that time I'm like, Oh, I kind of want to see space pirates. Then I would go see space pirates. But I, at no point in time would have been like, Hey, these are the guys that did all of these films. And you seem to like these films. It, it seems to me like that's never kind of put into play the way it is like Quentin Tarantino. Hey, here's the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino. Everybody's like, oh, I'm going to go see a Quentin Tarantino. Well, to so. be fair, it's always like Walt Disney's Aladdin. Yes. It's, it's never the brand. Musker and Clements. Yeah. Aladdin, you yeah. know, like they don't get to brand themselves. They are part of the machine that is Walt Disney. Yeah. So this, this is directed and produced uh, and written by Ron Clements and John Musker. And here's some of the films that they did. 1986 is The Great Mouse Detective, which is fantastic. Classic. Yep. The Little Mermaid, 1989. Classic. Aladdin in 1992. Classic. My Her- favorite Disney film. Okay. Like animated film. No. Yep. Oh, okay. Hercules, 1997, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Treasure Planet, 2002. And then, like you said, seven years later, they come back with The Princess and the Frog, which I've seen that. It's really good. Uh-huh. And then more recently, uh, Moana in 2016. I believe that was their swan song, right? Then they retire after Moana. Yeah, I think so. I so 
you you look at that. That's run, a good one to go out on. Yeah, Juan you, is great. <laughs> you look at that run of films, and you're like, oh my gosh, these guys are incredibly talented. Um, and then the screenplay. So you you have two credits here. You've got the screenplay and the story by. And and just a little reminder for people who don't know the difference. If you get a screenplay credit, that means that you wrote uh, scenes that are included in the final version. So think of it mm -hmm. as this is the final product, the dialogue and everything. Yep, your dialogue that you wrote specifically is in the movie. Yes, whereas story by is going to be anybody who worked on a treatment or story outline. They may have written some dialogue, but maybe it wasn't used. But really, it's you know the infusion of ideas or the yeah, concepts. The ideas are ideas are found within that you brought up that you created that are in the movie. Yeah. So stories is usually you have ideas that are in there. You know, screenplay is like on the screen. Your dialogue is being said. Exactly. So screenplay is Ron Clements, John Musker, and Rob Edwards. And then story by Ron Clements, John Musker, Ted Elliott, and Terry Razio. Razio, yep. Yep. So we've got really four story credits and then three screenplay credits, which probably isn't atypical for this type of story because they're doing an adaptation of a, of a classic novel. And yeah. obviously there is this concept to put it in space. So everybody's contributing these different ideas, but when it comes down to the screenplay, you're going to have three main people who are writing the screenplay in conjunction with overseeing the animation, everything else. And like you said, it's based on treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. Interesting. The music, we'll talk about the music specifically when we give our thoughts on the film, but the orchestral score is by James Newton Howard. Now you'll see his name in a lot of films. He has 171 credits as a composer, but he's also worked with people like, I think it was Hans Zimmer on like the dark Knight, you know, sort of the Christopher Nolan Batman film. So he will, you know, he's, he's done so many films. We couldn't sit here and list them all, but you see that name. You, you've probably seen it plenty of times in tons of films. Let's talk about the, the voice actors and actresses we get, and I would have never known this just listening to the voice, but you get Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Jim Hawkins. Did did you know that based on the voice? I did not. Like this was when he was, because after this, I believe he kind of steps away from acting for a little bit. Um, Cause this, I believe third rock from the sun was right around this time. And then it he steps away. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 he steps away, comes back and like, kind of mans up his he comes back with a little bit of a more manly voice um the voice he kind of has now um here he is definitely um a rat like a he, he's very childlike in this movie that it's almost recognizable to the joseph, joseph gordon levitt that you know today um like <clears throat> even i i kind of threw in brick uh just to kind of get that sort of feeling yeah and even then it's totally different it's not it's not even close so he definitely um i don't know if he changes like he doesn't change his voice but he his voice changes while he's away from acting when he comes back it's like i if i wouldn't have known going in that it was joseph gordon levitt i would have no idea as opposed to like you know titan ae you hear it and you're like, oh, that's Matt Damon. Matt Here it's Damon. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, Matt Damon. exactly. No, you're absolutely right. So Third Rock from the Sun, he had been doing that from 96 to 2001. So he's wrapping that up, does Treasure Planet. You're right. He, he doesn't do anything for a couple of years and then comes back with Mysterious Skin in 2004, which is a mm -hmm. crazy independent film. It's 
Cool film. It's cool. I like it a lot. Um, then Brick in 2005, which is probably my favorite Joseph Gordon-Levitt film. I, I love Looper. I, I mean, I like him as an actor, but yeah, Brick's I, pretty I really good. love Brick. That's fantastic. That's early Ryan Johnson for yes. anyone who doesn't know. It's, it is brilliant. Now, the other voice that you know as soon as you hear it is Emma Thompson as Captain Amelia. And it's interesting around this time period, I was kind of looking at, well, what, what was she doing at this point? Because I know she was producing uh, films and and stuff like that, but she did Primary Colors in 1998 with uh, John Travolta, I think. Mm -hmm. Then Maybe Baby in 2000, Treasure Planet 2002, and then follows that up with Love Actually in 2003. I'm I'm kind of a big Emma Thompson fan. I, I, I like a big, her a lot. Big, big Emma Thompson fan. Yep. Agreed. Uh, and then the other one that surprised me, which I think is a bigger name compared to some of the other ones, is Martin Short. He kind of shows up in the, I don't know, the last third of the film. Yeah, yeah. As yeah, it's a it's a later introduction of a character. I'm just gonna go ahead and say it, like that later introduction of a character in a film is usually a bad thing. Yeah. Uh I loved Ben yeah. and you become quickly attached to Ben and care for him very quickly. It is amazing that they introduce a character so late that you're automatically attached to. I, I like agree. immediately. And and what's funny is if you go and look at what Martin Short was doing at this time period. He did Jimmy Neutron, Boy Genius in 2001, which, believe it or not, I saw it in the theater. Um, so that's an example of something where I saw the trailer. I know it was a Nickelodeon property. The animation really interested me, and so uh, I, I dragged Tabitha to see it. Uh, and, and we had a lot of fun with it. But then Treasure Planet 2002, he also, in 2002, did another animated film, which I think this is funny, 101 Dalmatians 2, Patches London Adventure. Oh, Lord. Yeah. And then about this time, he's doing primetime Glick from 2001, 2003. So that's that. Is it Jiminy Glick? He has the fat suit yeah. on or something? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Okay. I don't know much about that. I, I think I've seen Glick. He's in, he's in uh, Santa Claus 3, though, as yeah. well. Oh, yeah, that's right. Santa Claus 3. Uh, you get Lori Metcalf as Sarah Hawkins. I think everybody will know her from the TV show Roseanne. Mm -hmm. and she was the sister, right? The sister, yep. One of my favorite actors, or television actors, because I love this series, but you get David Hyde Pierce as Dr. Doppler. And of You're course, a big Frasier guy. I love Frasier. So you also get Brian Murray as John Silver and Roscoe Lee Brown as Mr. Arrow. So that's your voice cast. I, I would say right out of the gate, when you're when you're thinking about 2000, none of these names are people that are you're gonna go, oh, such and such voice this character in this film, I'm going to go see that actor or actress or, or hear that. Yeah, actor, there's actress. no Robin Williams or anybody like that. Yep. That immediately is like, Oh, I have to go see how they do this. Yeah. And, and this I don't one, think any, I, honestly, I don't think Disney ever did anything better than getting Robin Williams as the genie. That is probably the most perfect casting they've ever done. I would agree yep. with that yep. outside of David Spade doing the voice of a llama. Okay. There you go. It, yep. It's a close, I don't know. Those, those would tie for me. Just because, you know, llamas. Well, anyways, we, we already <laughs> talked about that. Anyways, you hinted at this. So let's just talk about the development and production real quick. The concept was originally pitched in 1985 by Ron Clements. And what happened was they were going through a bunch of different ideas. So he pitched two ideas to him at the time in 85. The first one was this one. And the second one was The Little Mermaid. And Disney said, we're going to do The Little Mermaid. Mm -hmm. So the pitch was rejected by Michael Eisner. They came back around and pitched it again in 1989 following the release of The Little Mermaid, but the studio 
really said, we're not interested. They, they expressed disinterest. They pitched again following the release of Aladdin, but Jeffrey Katzenberg, who at the time was the chief of Walt Disney Studios, wasn't interested in the idea. So from 85 all the way to, um, real or excuse me, yeah, uh, 85, 89 gets shot down, then Aladdin. Oh, and then uh, Clements and Musker approached feature animation chairman Roy E. Disney who <laughs> Roy E. Disney, Roy E. Love Disney. It. Yep. Who backed the filmmakers and wow. made his wishes known to everybody that we were going to do this film. But I think what really, if you read between the lines, I think what happened was they go to Roy E. Disney and they say, look, we've been kicking around this idea from 85. We want to do this. We've done all these other films for you. And so Roy E. Disney says, okay, let's do this because I think he's afraid they're going to leave. And in fact, well, yeah, if you if you look at it, they renegotiate their contract, and so if they do Hercules, mm -hmm. then yep. the next film is going to be Treasure Planet. Yep. So the contract gets renegotiated in 1995 to allow them to commence development on Treasure Planet as soon as Hercules is completed. So to your point earlier, it's a matter of they're they're doing all these hits for Disney. And they had this idea and it's sort of their passion project and everybody's saying no to it, but they finally go to the big chief and they're like, Hey, look, we want to do this. Look at all this money we made for you. We're going to walk. Well, let's renegotiate your contract. Give us one more big hit. And Hercules was a big hit. Mm -hmm. And then you can turn around and do treasure planet. And, and here's I mean, the I, So, so to be fair to Musker yeah. and Clements, like they made way more money than they lost on this film. They lost somewhere between 80 and a hundred million dollars on this movie. They made, that 20 fold for Disney over oh, their absolutely. life of working. So let's not like they, this is their one blemish, um, but it is a huge bomb for Disney, which is crazy, but they've made yeah. so much money for them. It, it's their one financial blemish. Let, let's yes. caveat yes. it that way. Yes. So it's, it took four and a half years to create. There were an estimated 1,027 crew members listed in the screen credits with about 400 artists and computer artists. Yeah, so we have hand-drawn with CGI in this movie, um, which is huge in the early 2000s. Uh, yeah, see, everybody's chasing after that. See Titan A, right? see Atlantis, yeah. um, all that stuff is is creating this hybrid model. Um, yes. You know, and, and, for, and for this one, you know, like I said last time, like we got hand-drawn and CGI, like with Aladdin, uh, the fire, things like that. But that was like, certain aspects they just couldn't do hand-drawn so they would do it with computers to help you know so they could create it this is like no we're doing vast majority of stuff like here it's boats and all that stuff in cgi with hand-drawn characters well and they're they're also and and we'll talk about this when we talk about thoughts of the film but the other thing that makes this thing unique and if you read sort of the director's comments they're saying you know what waiting as long as we did was a good thing because the other thing they wanted to do was get a lot more camera motion and movement around. Yes. And you couldn't do that back in 85, 89, et cetera. So it, they threw the name James Cameron. They wanted it to be like a James Cameron film. Absolutely. And so in order to do that technology, had to keep up with, you know, catch up with the ideas. And so it did. So the timing of the technology in comparison to what they want to do, it, it was the, it was the perfect time. Yep. It was nominated for the Academy Awards for Best Animated Feature, but it lost that year. Do you know what film? Spirited Away. Spirited Away. It was not nominated for Best Picture at the Annie Awards. Now, Annie Awards is sort of the Academy Awards, but it's just for animated films. 
Um, it was nominated in a bunch of other several, you know, other categories or several other categories like specific um, character animations, etc. But it didn't even for the Annie Awards, it didn't even get a Best Picture nomination, but it did get the Academy Award. But again, Spirited Away took the Annie Award and the Academy Award that year, which it should. <laughs> yes. Now, one of the things when you're talking about these type of animated films and the audience that they're going for, and we learned this when we talked about Iron Giant, you have to have marketing. You have to have your cross promotional marketing. And that takes about a year plus to set up. This one had it. So Treasure Planet is a pure Disney film. As it's coming out, they're doing all the advertising. They got the posters. They got the trailers. But they also have cross-promotional marketing with McDonald's, Pepsi-Cola, Dryers, and the Kellogg Company. So those are the big ones, right? So yep. you go to McDonald's. You're getting your Treasure, Treasure Planet Happy Meal, all the toys. All the kids I know remember about this it. Thing. I remember it. Yeah. Like specifically uh, that marketing um, at McDonald's. Yeah. So honestly, if you, would you say the budget was like one one forty? So you could probably double that. It's two eighty. Yeah. With so marketing two eighty to break even when you consider all of the marketing and everything that they had to do. Uh, and and this isn't one of those films where they're trying to get you know elements of it back with cross promotion um, or kind of you know inserting. they did do a video game like five years later. Yeah, uh, for PlayStation Two, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Um, in the fourth quarter of 2002, they wrote off $49 million. The film is still out. So this comes out in November, the end of November, the end of the fourth quarter, they write off $50 million essentially. Yeah. Well, the analysts looked at what it pulled in the first. Yeah. They knew the weekend. first weekend. You can do yeah. the math after the first weekend. There's easy ways to figure out what your total gross is going to be based on that. And they knew right then and there that, of course, when you open at 12, you're, you're looking at yourself and say, we're, in big, big trouble. Yeah. And the other thing to keep in mind too, is the context of when this film is released in relation to other Disney films. So I thought this was kind of interesting. You know, we were talking about really Clements and Musker in terms of what they produced, you know, everything from the great mouse detective to Moana. But if you're looking at where treasure planet lives in the chronology of Disney films in 2000, Disney released dinosaur, in also 2000, they released The Emperor's New Groove. In 2001, you get Atlantis, The Lost Empire. 2002, Disney puts out two films, Lilo and Stitch and Treasure Planet. And actually, in Treasure Planet, in the beginning, you you will see a little Stitch sitting Stitch, on the shelf. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They follow. And I believe Lilo and Stitch was a pretty big hit. Yeah, it was. It was nice and successful. They, yeah. they made money off that one. Yeah. Um, the year after that, they do Brother Bear in 2003, Home on the Range in 2004. Chicken Little in 2005. I believe the Home on the Range and the and Brother Bear were the two that were already in production, hand-drawn yep. wise, is why they couldn't stop those. And I don't um, think these were like very no, those, successful. No, no. Yeah. And and again, you, I, you're getting to some Disney films here, especially in this lineup, because if, if you actually look at the first 10 years of the 2000s, right? Outside of maybe, uh, I don't know, Lilo and Stitch, Emperor's New Groove, which was you know, a good hit for him. Um, princess and the frog tangled there there's really, it's just not a big money-making decade for Disney at that. Yeah. I would say the 2000 to 2010 range is probably Disney's kind of decline as a, with their quality. Um, now the whole Pixar thing changes that, but yeah, yeah, their, their own Disney stuff, I would say is probably their weakest output since they started. 
Um, I'm trying to think on what else would it be, but yeah. And honestly, I don't think they could compete with the Pixar products. You talked about a film that came out at the same weekend that this one did, which was Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. So it's the Mm -hmm. second film in a franchise. And so I I really think anybody who might have been interested in Treasure Planet, they were going to go to anything Harry Potter. Because the the Harry Potter is such a phenomenal, um, I don't know, juggernaut of culture at that time period that I'm, I'm sure Disney is looking at that and saying, we want our own Harry Potter. And, um, they, you know, they, they just couldn't get it going with, with stuff like treasure planet. Yeah. Cause they're there. You can see them kind of not turning their back on the female audience, um, getting away from the princess stuff, but they're definitely trying to get that 12 to 22 year old male into the, into thinking that seeing an animated film is cool. And yeah. that was what they were doing with this. Well, they essentially they were chasing. I mean, we talked about this with John Carter. So John Carter came out in what 2012. Mm-hmm. So for a long time, you know, they they had the Disney princesses, like you talked about. So yep. Disney is really trying to go after you know the other gender and saying, well, we want to go after the boy market. And so they're doing stuff like Atlantis. They're doing stuff like Treasure Planet. When in fact, what they want is Star Wars. Yeah. And so, so they buy it, so they go ahead and buy it. And then yeah, 20, now we think of Disney as a, I think more now Disney caters more towards males than females now for some reason. Um, well, especially on like, maybe that's just because of stuff I watch, you know, but Marvel and Star Wars and, you know, all their, the plus stuff seems very male oriented, but again, that just could be me. So no, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, if you look at it in the early two thousands, they're spending a lot of money on, stuff to get that particular type of market (laughs) on boys. And then they are like, you know what, forget it. We're going to spend 4.5 or billion dollars in 2012 to get, you know, the star Wars franchise. And then they go after, you know, the MCU and everything else. So they, they just bought their franchise because they had such a tough time between, you know, stuff like John Carter, treasure plan, you know, to, to be able to get that going. And I know like Atlantis, I think was moderately successful and there were direct to video sequels for it, but Mm. Treasure Planet was, had planned sequels and they were going to do TV shows, but yeah, Willem Dafoe was like ready to do a sequel. He was going to be Iron Beard, I believe. And like, it was going to be like this whole another big adventure, but the first one just flopped. And, you know, of course, you know, Aladdin got so many sequels that were direct to video and those were very successful for Disney too. So I don't know if they were doing, yeah. they thought it was going to go direct to video or to the theater, but they had plans for Treasure Planet. Um, Treasure Planet's performance then killed all of that immediately. Yeah, I, th- I think in that video market, because they were doing Lion King sequels, well, heck, they mm-hmm. did 101 Dalmatians too. So, yep. you know, they're making money off that. But nope, Treasure Planet totally bombs. And quite honestly, this is one of those when you actually look at the convergence of everything that was happening at this time period, it sort of makes total sense why this thing bombed. I mean, it, it just honestly, it didn't stand a chance. It's this one, I think you could see coming from a mile away if you knew what the release schedule was and what was going on that year. Whereas um, with Iron Giant, I mean, if you think about it, it, it was hard to predict that Sixth Sense or even Blair Woods were going to be such big hits when it came out. But yeah, this yeah. one, they, I don't know. It, it, I think the writing was on the wall a year in advance. If you were to look at it and go, you're, you're not going to win against Harry Potter. You're not going to win against Harry Potter and you're probably not even going to win against Santa Claus too. I know that sounds crazy, but like 
No, you're for right. family films, this is going to be the third choice. And yep. you don't want to be the third choice um, around the holidays because people are already spending a bunch of money. They're going to see maybe two films and they're seeing Harry Potter for sure. And they might see Santa Claus or they might see James Bond. Um, there's no, there's no reason to see this movie if you're a family. And it's weird. And I, I still, after seeing this film, I still don't know who this movie is for. To be perfectly <laughs> honest with you. Okay. It's well, such an odd duck. This movie is such an odd duck. Let, let's get into it. I mean, okay. it's, it, it's time. I, let's, let's share our thoughts on the film. Uh, it's a first time full watch. Well, for you, you've seen pieces of it. I've only seen the trailer. I've never seen anything of this thing. So, um, I went in totally blind, but I'm curious now you've seen the whole thing. What's your initial reaction? I was surprised at how much more I enjoyed this than Titan AE. I was, it was doing that comparison in my mind. Like you have the father figure that is a good guy that turns bad guy, then turns good guy. You have like, obviously this, this adventure for something that's lost and you have these quirky like side characters, like it's not even close. Like treasure planet is a million miles ahead of Titan AE and it moves at a pretty decent pace. I, invested in all the character relationships, uh, especially silver and Jim. I, I, you know, when, when silver kind of turns, it's kind of disappointing. I was a little bit like, obviously I kind of knew the story of treasure Island. So I, I knew it, but when it happens, um, this thing looks like it could come out yesterday and be yes. like a, like it, it looks amazing and it, it, it kind of goes to show you if you spend your money well, now $140 million is a lot of money. And like we talked about Titan AE, they wasted $30 million right off the bat with Titan AE, but they still spent 75 million on production. So it wasn't like they didn't spend any money, but this thing, you know, looks so good. And when you compare the two, it's like a joke. Um, I would say the voice performances in this one are better. Um, nothing in Titan A is better than Martin Short. Martin Short is amazing in this movie. Um, even Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I like, even though I really didn't know it was him. Um, I, I don't know. I think it's a toss-up between Martin Short and David Hyde Pierce. Those okay, were yeah. my two favorites. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You could see, I feel like I've never, I don't know, I should say I, I never, but this movie failing it's such a bummer because it's such a enjoyable movie and something that I really enjoyed and was like surprised at how much I, I liked it and how invested I was in the adventure. And, you know, it's, it's like when they finally get to the planet, like it kind of looks like a skull, but it's also got these two things that make an X. So X marks the spot. Like there's all these cool little things that it's doing. And I like the pirate aesthetic. I like the way that the boats like fly through the fly through space, which I was looking at, like there is some sort of canonical explanation of it. Like apparently there's these wind tunnels in space that they can fly into. So it takes some, I don't know. There, there's an explanation on why, cause you know me, I was like, well, how, why are they able to breathe out in outer space? But apparently there are these air tubes pockets that they can like go to. That's how they, how it happens. But anyway, aesthetically it's better. Um, you know, I, I get, I really enjoyed this movie. Um, it was a joy to watch. Um, I'm kind of hoping that I can get my son to watch it at some point in time so I can watch it again. 
and have an excuse because <laughs> uh, I really, really liked it. I, um, <clears throat> I didn't like it as much as say Iron Giant, but it was almost pretty close. Like I, I liked it a lot. And I think, again, if this thing comes out last year, I'm like, oh, you wouldn't know. Like it, it looks, it holds up so well. And I threw on Atlantis to kind of look at Atlantis too. And even that didn't hold up as well as, as this one. So um, it's money well spent on that end. Now, of course, it's a bad investment, but it, it does look like $140 million. So, yeah. It, it really is an unsung Disney treasure if you think about it. Because if you think about all the films that they've done and how much or how many times they get re-released, I mean, I would love to see this thing get a nice 4K release, the the whole treatment, the special features, the director's cut, whatever, you know, Criterion gets a hold of it. But this is, this one is of definitely the, the redheaded stepchild of it the is, Disney yeah, canon. Because it just lost so much money. But I also, I don't know, if, if you talk with Disney fans in general, I never hear anybody talk about this film. Uh, or even science fiction fans, yeah. but I'm like you, I, like I said before, when I, when I came across this thing initially, I never really wanted to watch it because it, to me in my head, I'm like, well, I know the story inside and out. So why do I want to watch treasure Island again? And then, you know, even with space pirates, uh, but it looked too much like Atlantis for, I just thought I would be bored through the whole thing. Um, but I was caught off guard with this thing big time. I, I really enjoyed sort of this new take on an old story. And to your point, I really think the animation is breathtaking in spots and really holds up um, today. And even, I don't know, it looks better than some of the stuff I've seen even today from an animation standpoint. And, and I think that's where I want to start is I want to talk about the animation style so right out of the gate, the thing that sort of struck me was this film, it, it looks like storybook hand-drawn animation. So this, the, you know, I, I don't know if you remember growing up, you would get those storybooks in grade school or something and it would, you would see treasure Island. You'd have these elaborate, almost Norman Rockwell, like paintings or depictions of, of the story. Yeah. Yeah. They're essentially early graphic novels. In yeah, a way. so you're you're getting that style of animation, that hand drawn animation merged with a '70s sci-fi background art that you find on those cheap dime store novellas in the '70s <laughs> that were just awesome to look at. I mean, the the books were probably junk, but the covers looked you know so amazing. And then you get some elaborate CGI built on top of it. So you've did got you a, see the rule that they had to follow with the animation stuff and the uh, kind of coming up with the concepts? It was like the 70-30 law. Oh, yeah. So they had to do like 70 percent was traditional, and then the last thirty percent they could do sci-fi. But it really had to be kind of based more in traditional stuff than sci-fi. So yeah, and um, and that's the the thing I always liked about steampunk was that combination of your Victorian style with a futuristic mm -hmm. tint to it. Yep. And, and I think this has a little bit of steampunk to it, but yeah, the guns and some of the stuff. Yeah, for yeah, sure. But it seems a little bit more classy than steampunk. If that makes sense, <laughs> you know, it's not as wow, I dig it's steampunk. Yeah. It's just, it's, I don't know. With steampunk, it's always kind of grungy looking with yeah, this there's one. like pipes and these weird gears and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. It, it's crazy. You've got a combination of three styles too. You've got traditional 2D character animation that Disney obviously is known for. You get three-dimensional character animation and then computer-generated or CG environments with all of it merged together. 
and it and it absolutely looks beautiful. And and a great example. And every time he would come on screen, I, my jaw would just drop because you're you're watching silver, and um, off to I think it's his right temple. He's got those cyborg enhancements, uh-huh. and these gears are always turning, and you see what's going on within that hand drawn animation, and just that. See, that character sequence alone, anytime you see him, is just well, even amazing. like his arm and his leg and his eye, like all that stuff is just so intricate and well done. And you kind of there's parts where you're just like watching all that stuff move around and you're trying to think in your mind how it works. And you know, you're you're coming up with like you know, kind of his origin on how all this stuff happened, like to get eaten by an alligator, like in the hook or whatever, you know, like <laughs> yeah. all this stuff. So well, and that that whole sequence in the beginning where he's on what is essentially sort of a powered surfboard and he's almost You're talking about Jim doing yeah, Jim. the extreme sports, yeah. Yeah, he's doing the extreme sports montage in the beginning. Um and he goes up into the sky and then he does a free fall and the way that animation was looking with the camera spinning I had not seen anything like that. It's like it's like point break. It is, but it's an it's a animated It's animated. <laughs> point break and it looks fantastic yeah i mean you i I guess for it's hard for people who don't understand how difficult that stuff if you don't have a context and you just assume okay they can do that stuff like well no they can't like you could if you had an infinite amount of time yeah right you could animate anything you want given 10 years 20 years, 30 years, like you can do whatever you want. And there's ways but to cheat it too. Well, I don't want to say yeah. cheat, but like rotoscope or mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah. It's yeah. a style of animation that you can use to recreate. Well, anything that Ralph Bakashi was doing too. Ralph Bocci? Bocci, sorry. Yeah. Did I say Bakashi? Yeah, he's he's like the yeah. heavy metal guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Felix the Cat. Yep. Uh, didn't he do the Lord of the Rings adaptations as well? Yeah, The, the Hobbit. Animated. And then I think. Yeah, The Hobbit. There's of- just the first Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that's right. The rotoscope ones. Um, but anyway, yeah. Rotoscope. That's uh, that's what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. Very the he's the very porn porny guy. <laughs> that guy. Yeah. Uh anyway, but again, that stuff with time and budget in mind is almost impossible to do without the help of computers. And even then, it's not easy. Like that stuff's not easy. Uh so some of the stuff they're doing in this film, once you kind of know just how hard it is. You're like, Oh wow. Like this is quite, uh, quite amazing. Um, full disclosure, Troy, I don't know if I ever told you this story, but at one point in time, I wanted to be an animator. Oh, full disclosure, Brad. I went to art school in uh, high school. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I thought I really wanted to do animation. So I, I have done a lot of research on some of this stuff just as a, you know, character study, but I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. But anyway, I, I, I'm with you. I had a fact, I mean, you and I both grew up on comic books and the reason why I begged my parents to send me to art school while I was going to high school was I didn't want to do animation per se, but I really just wanted to draw in general and, yeah. I, and I love charcoal, you know, drawing and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I, I have a fact, I think that's why I've always, it didn't matter well, we were joking the other day. You had to uh, uh, take one of your kids to Paw Patrol. Yes, I did. And yep. in my head, I'm like, look, if the animation was just a little bit better, I would be right there with you at Paw Patrol because I it, 
I know that certain stories and everything are designed for children of mm -hmm. a certain age, but I'm really fascinated by just animated films in general, which is weird to me because I should like Japanimation more or have seen more Japanimation. Yes, because of the way, yes, yes. But Japanimation has always just been a, I don't know, the, I must have come across too much Japanimation that for me was like just fingernails on a chalkboard because some mm -hmm. of it, I'm like, I, I can't watch this. This is just scantily clad girls with big boobs screaming and firing guys. I don't want to watch this. I mean, surprisingly. To each his own, I guess. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but I love Akira. I love Ghost in the Shell. I love Ninja Scroll. I mean, I love a lot of the heavy hitters. But the, it, just watching the animation style on this, I'm a big fan of the art of books. Mm -hmm. So anytime you go watch a film, like I love the Star Wars art of because you get yeah. all of the character designs and you get to see. You get to see what Darth Vader's helmet was going to look like originally or what the Stormtroopers were going to look like originally. Like yeah, you see like nine variations yeah, yeah, before yeah. you get to the final one. Here's Boba Fett. And you're like, that doesn't look like the Boba Fett I know at all. Yeah, not at all. So yeah. after this film was over, the first thing I do is I go to Amazon. I'm like, oh, I got to get the Art of Treasure Plant. I'm $350, like, right? No, I'm not going to buy that because uh, somebody would be sleeping on the couch for a while. But uh, yeah, that was – that. I I love the animation. So let's talk about the character design. Did you have a favorite character? Oh, it's Silver by far. And then, uh, then Ben. I like Ben and then I like Silver a lot. Oh, though it's hard. Like – the guy, the big guy with the little guy on top of him was awesome. Yes. The bug, the bug guy was also cool. What about the flatulent the, alien? The flatulent guy was <laughs> with all the like butthole mouse things. Yeah. Um, I think like, again, you compare this to Titan AE and you're like, okay, well, there's the one guy that had the missing ear who was kind of, you know, dislike. And then there's the kangaroo one, but they're all kind of, uh, and then. I still, the like energy. The, I still like the creature design of Titan but it's A, but it's, it doesn't, it's night it doesn't and day hold a compared to this. To this. Oh, yes, yeah, yes. absolutely. It's, um, again, the the quality of work here is just unmatched when it comes to just the character design. And so, I mean, Silver is like a, you could write a textbook on why he is so, such a great character just by design. Because like, as a viewer, I'm coming up and I'm thinking about well, how's his eye work? How's this work? Like when he does this, all those gears turn and like, how's his arm? Like where do all those parts go in his arm? Like I'm thinking about all that stuff just based on the little information they're giving me. Um, I have never wanted a cybernetic arm more than ever now after watching him using it cook. Yeah. That and like he's sequence. got the one where it's just yeah. the fingers and the fingers are like intricately done. And it's, it's, it's really amazing. And like when it comes close to the camera, you can just see all of the pieces to his fingers and all that stuff. But it, it makes sense how he uses it when he's, he's cooking that soup or whatnot. And I'm sitting there like if, if somebody, if I, if his home shopping network late at night and they're like, look, we'll chop off your arm and we'll give you this. And it did all those <laughs> things. I'd be like, Tabitha, I'm taking a few days off to get a cybernetic cooking arm. Cause the only problem awesome. I had with that is like, there's a part where he has a musket in one part. And then I think there's a cannon like later on, you're like, why would you need the musket if you got the cannon? Like the cannon will do just fine. Well, you know, you got to be strategic sometimes, right? Eh, if you're going to use your arm as a weapon, why not go all Mega Man on somebody? Either way, I want one of those arms. Yeah. I was sold. But yeah, I, that's, I, 
the robot police that show up in the meeting. This is what struck me as odd is they can tip their cap. The minor they can tip their cap. <laughs> yeah, the minor characters that come in and you go, wow, that looks like this Victorian police officers. So it goes for a little bit of a steampunk uh, feel to it, but it looks much Even cleaner. The, the turtle guy who wrecks, they like his character. Oh, yeah. He's in the film for thirty seconds, and he is such a cool designed character. And of course, he dies, which you know, then you're like, oh boy, like this has some stakes. But uh, yeah, even that guy who's in the film for 30 seconds to a minute is just like a mind-blowing character. Well, the, designed. The, the pirate in the storybook that he's reading that has like the eight eyes. Yes. That thing looks scary as hell, dude. Isn't that, isn't that the guy at the end? Yeah. So they find a skeleton, yeah. Yeah. which even looked creepier. I mean, the, the dude was creepy alive. He looks creepier as a skeleton. Uh, the patrons at the restaurant, you get the uh, old one-eyed alien who wants her juice. And, and you've got all this stuff going in the background that I'm I'm just, I wanted, there were a couple times I paused the film just to look at it, to see mm -hmm. a character and go, that is so cool, that whole concept and design of it. Um, we talked about the flagellant alien. I, I know it's super childish, but I laughed every time, especially when Dr. Doppler communicates back to him. I That, that got a belly laugh out of me. The most impressive thing to me, though, was the Orcus Galactus. So it was the flying catfish orca whale thing when they take off and it's flying out. Oh, yes. That thing. Yep. I, I'm. It was freaking amazing. I'm telling you, it's one of the best creatures I've seen in a movie in a long time. And that was the sequence. I'm like, it looks hand-drawn CG. I don't know how they did it. It looked gorgeous, but it was so interesting. Um, as, a, as a Fantastic Four fan how did you like fancy the thing fan, the rock yeah. the rock guy i, I, I did like it yeah, yeah that was cool um, that's my note ask troy about fancy the thing <laughs> I, it's cool i mean i like I, it seems like they're pulling from so many different stories models character designs everything else but it's so unique the the only thing like disney has to have its sidekick right this character right it's cute little sidekick morph morph is okay what he's okay i liked morph a lot i i liked morph but with everything that's going on in the background to have this blob that just changes into stuff i'm like okay but you've got i don't know the all the other characters everything just seemed to take away from morph a little bit at least yeah. visually and actually my biggest complaint about this movie is we don't spend any time with like the pirates like they're on the crew like yeah. i want to know about those guys like you know it's that part in Empire Strikes Back, where you have Boba Fett and IG-88. Yeah, the bounty hunters. Like, yeah, I want to know about those guys. Um, and I wanted to know about the the pirate crew. Like, I wanted to know what they what their backstory was. Why is that bug guy so mean? I don't think he was coddled enough as a child or something. Yeah. I yeah. don't know. Well, do bugs, like, do the mom bugs coddle the... Who knows? Um, he has what? a very hard exterior, Troy. Okay. The environment. So we've talked Exoskeleton. about we talked about the animation, the character design, the environments, um, the moon colony. So there's this transition when they're in the restaurant. They go the out the port. window into the spaceport. That at the distance it looks like a sliver of a moon, crescent moon, the crescent moon. Yep. But as you get closer to it, it's an entire space colony. And then they do this flyover. Now the trailer kind of starts with that, and it's mm -hmm. impressive. But man, talk about a fantastic transition from one super interesting environment to the other. And then the other thing that was a bit jaw dropping was the black, excuse me, the supernova that eventually that turned into turns a into a black hole. 
Yes. Yeah. That sequence is a great, like in your adventure film, you need that sequence and they nailed it. You know, they need that. Here's our part where we're in peril that we need to escape something part of our adventure film. And they do a really good job of that. Um, And even kind of escaping it makes, you know, makes sense in a way like they obviously a supernova turning into a black hole in 20 minutes is obviously not how it works, but again, we take millions of years, but anyway, but you know, it has that sort of outburst of energy and they ride that wave essentially um, out of it, which is just kind of a cool concept and it works for this movie. Cause you know, it's a boat and they call it a wave and you're like, okay, I got it. Perfect. That's all I need. Yeah. I, hey, we'll talk about the science in a minute. I was totally <laughs> bought into the entire uh, visual representation of what was going on. And it, it was one of those thoughts as I'm watching that thing, I'm like, okay, there, what is the climax going to be? Because if this is in the middle of the film and this is jaw dropping, there's no way they can one up this. I don't think they do. No, they don't. However, there are elements of that planet that you were talking about that are so super cool. And I think the other thing they do, which is super interesting is they're showing this portal. So it's a triangular portal and they're Stargate. Yeah, it's it's a Stargate and they're showing like, Hey, this is how they stole all the treasure is they would use this portal, go to this planet and then come back through the portal. But it was so cool to see glimpses of these other worlds. And as they're going through each of the worlds, I'm like, Ooh, stop. Let's, let's go into that one. What is that? Cause there were some creatures that were in the background, some giant like Kaiju looking things and, uh, I, I really like the back end of this, um, visually just as much as the middle, but man, that middle part is pretty thrilling. Yeah. I, I think that might be one of my minor complaints of this is the climax doesn't reach the heights of that middle part. Um, it's still exciting and it's, it's definitely got some tension. Um, there are some better character moments, I would say that kind of make up for the fact that it's not as exciting. So yeah, um, I agree. I agree. Yeah, and, and but even how the movie starts where you get this storybook where the kids, you know, I guess watching the story unfold and you see the animation and you get this big battle scene with pirate ships and space shooting cannons at each other, it it hooks you just from that sequence alone. Yeah, exactly. It, it's exactly. gorgeous. So let are can we talk about science? Sure, go ahead. I, I'd love to answer your questions about science. So I had to look at so took me, I guess it was that black hole scene where all of a sudden I'm like, wait a second, they're in space and they don't have spacesuits and they're tying each other to the boat. Yeah. Isn't it called like the Ethereum or whatever? Yeah. So if here's the concept, it basically comes down to an outer space that's filled with atmosphere. So they call it Ethereum. Yeah. And, and the whole concept of the film is if, if you're going to have pirate ships in space, you don't want to have pirate ships with people in spacesuits like walking around, et cetera. So there's this concept that um, space is the sea. And so outer space is filled with this breathable atmosphere and you have gravity machines that keep you from floating off into space. So you don't need spacesuits, but it, inter- it, it basically turns space into this big giant ocean and for whatever reason that whole concept so there's there's a character and something bad happens so i'm not going to spoil it like you do brad um when we talk about cowboy bebop but there's something that happens to a character 
and they're not tied down and they start floating off into space. And now he's, he, she, it is floating in an endless sky where you just keep falling or floating or floating and you're breathing. And that is one of the most scariest things I can think of to ever happen. Like the ocean has always kind of scared me to underwater, like underwater ocean films, not because of what lives in the ocean, but it's always those sequences where the camera's down there and you, you can't see it. It looks like infinity, just blue infinity. And space always has that effect too. But for some reason, being in a spacesuit makes you feel more safe. But in this world, your gravity machine goes out and you just f- are floating in space, but you can breathe. And to me, that's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because <clears throat> they use all the same concepts, you know, they have to still like, um, you know, tie all the ropes down and you attach the rope to yourself to make sure you don't fly off the ship during certain yeah. parts. Um, yeah. It, it, you know, it keeps the boat aesthetic, but it makes sense to do it in space. I, I think it looks cooler. Um, oh, it does. Yeah. Just having those big boats in space seeing the whole thing um, and it, it, they do a good job of just making it seem like, Oh yeah, of course, of course those boats could fly in space. Why not? Yeah. But that you know, con- cause like the, like the, the uh, sails like look like they're gathering energy and stuff too. Yeah, they're like like solar sails. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I'm telling you, I don't know what it is about that concept, but I, I think it's the most unique thing we've seen on all the movies we've talked about, because you know we've we've dabbled in science fiction films, but I can't think of another concept that seems so simplistic. Where you go, we're going to turn space into an ocean, everybody can breathe, and the movie establishes this rule set, and it sticks to it through the entire thing. And that's yeah. the type of science fiction film that really gets me jazzed. Is you set these rules up, and you go, well, here's the world we built for you, and it makes sense logically your brain buys into it, even though that's not how the, you know, the universe works per se. And, uh, but from the story elements, the characters and everything else are interacting with it for them. It's realistic. And you're like, dude, I'm totally in, I'm sold. And it doesn't get in the way of you enjoying the film. In fact, you're, you're like, wow, I love that concept. And there's aspects or elements of it that just really get you thinking about things. I, I really well, love that thing. And, and the, the movie, to its credit, does not waste any time really explaining. Oh yeah, how it doesn't a lot get of this like, stuff works. It, it just you just kind of buy into it because the characters buy into it and are everyone like agrees to these rules and the whole film is playing by those rules and that's it. Like, like okay, and this and this is where they. Like in this universe, that's how it all works. And that's all I need. Yeah. They're, they're showing you through these events versus a bunch of exposition. Yeah. So it's storytelling done right. I think, I mean, it's, it's really well done and I'm not a science guy. You start putting too much science in math and you are, you are not Bill Bill um, Nye, are you? No. I'm like, especially you start throwing like math equations in there. I'm out, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I really, I, I get excited about these type of films when science fiction, really doesn't just try and rely more on the science part of it. I mean, this is a little bit of science with heavy fiction and man, they pull it off that I really respect this film for that. Um, I have a question for you. Okay. So have, have you, have you read 
um, the original source material, or you've seen any of the other Treasure Island? I saw like, the Muppets Treasure Island film a long time ago, and I've read the book. It's been a long time. I don't. I'm not super familiar. If it's 1950s sci-fi trivia, I'll get it. But if it's Treasure Island trivia, not so much. So here's a question. It was kind of bothering me a little bit. Now, don't me wrong. I unabashedly love this film. Spoiler alert. Um, there you see, I did that, Brad. I pulled a Brad. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, but one of the things I was thinking about was in all of the other iterations of this, and, and even in the original novel, you have a little kid who's super smart that part of the charm of the adventure is this little kid is outsmarting these pirates and going on this big adventure. And it seems like there's a little bit more stakes built into that type of scenario because here's a child who there's no way can go toe to toe with any of the other characters in the story in the book or in the other films. And so he has to rely on his wits. He has to rely on being smarter and understanding the scenarios and resources and everything else. And that's how he kind of gets through. But mm -hmm. in this film, it's sort of a late teenager or early twenties. Um, I think I read that he's 15 in this movie. He's 15. Okay. So he's a teenage boy. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess my question to you is, does it, does it hurt the central story of having Jim kind of being a teenage boy or young man rather than a kid outsmarting pirates? No. And here's my reason. I, I think he still seems like he is not fully there. You know, like he's not, obviously he hasn't lived up to his potential yet, but the a, he's always outnumbered. Right. Even at the even with the standoff with his other two people, it's like three against like twelve. Um, so he always feels like he's in danger. Um, but I could see if he was a child, if the stakes would be a little bit higher. But I don't know if I would believe that a, a child could go up against Silver um, or his crew and kind of outwit them. I don't. I, I don't but, know if I buy that. Was, that that was honest. the charm of the original narrative, right? Yeah. Yeah, but this is Treasure Planet. So, I, you know, I, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know. They have like guns and stuff. And I, I don't know. I, I just think it'd be hard for me to see a child do this stuff. And, you know, I'm already in this fantastical world. I don't know if I need this element of a child going up against these these pirates and, and outwitting them and out, you know, maneuvering them. I, I like that he is somewhat of a, of a younger man that can do this. Um, that's a long winded answer, but yeah, I, I like the way that the, the film handles it. Yeah. I, I didn't mind it. It just did stick out a little bit that some of the sequences, the action sequences or how they get out of things, you know, they, they basically use, I, I mean, he comes in as rebel without a cause. He's, you know, sort of a trouble yeah, team looking for, yes. you know, his dad, et cetera. And, and, and that's an interesting take on it. I get it, but I don't know. I don't know if there's one common thing with this one in Titan AE, maybe even so I'm thinking of iron giant and part of what makes iron giant so good is I almost think it's the age of that kid. So Hogarth, Hogarth is this little kid with a lot of wisdom. He's smarter than his age and watching him interact with adults. There's a charm to it. Whereas take Titan AE or this one, 
you've got a young man or a teenager, and I'm wondering if the age of that main protagonist, would this film have done better if it had Hogarth, you know, instead of okay. Jim? Now that you put it that way, mate. Okay. Now I'm thinking because you said Hogarth and now I'm thinking him in this movie. Is it a better movie? Yeah. I, and that's the only and, thing and I think it of. might be. Yeah. I, I don't know. Because I just remember, and again, it's been years, but I remember as a kid reading Treasure Island and thinking it was so cool that you had this kid sort of outsmarting his environment. And that's one of the things I liked about Iron Giant was you would have um, basically the adult characters and even this outer space monster who are relying on the wisdom of this little kid, you know, to kind of teach him what it is to be good. And inherently it's, there adds an extra element to it. And in my head, I'm thinking, I, I love this film, but at the end of it, did Disney miss out on an opportunity by saying, we should have had a Hogarth character in here. And that may have attracted a different crowd. It may have added that Disney. I, here's the thing. I think at the end of the day, this is missing a Disney element. Yes. This, none of the, nothing that in this movie says this is a Disney movie. It's missing that Disney, I won't say charm, but just that Disney it's got the charm. Of it. It's it, and I think it could have gotten it if it had Hogarth in this versus Jim, or the age of Hogarth's character, or Ho, Ho, you know, call Hogarth Jim. So and put if, him in this if thing. the Jim character at the very beginning, it doesn't fast forward twelve years or whatever, and he's five or whatever, but, but a little bit older. Like I said, yeah. Ho, Hogarth's age. I mean, yeah. You, so you he's just 10. back in like just do ten. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean that's a good point. Um, Another thing I was thinking about is like you and I have great relationships or, you know, with our father, our fathers are very important to us. And, and now we're talking about these films about, we love them that the fathers are like non-existent. It's really weird that like, we, I don't know. I always like enjoy films like this, but it's like the father figure is never there. And, but they're always kind of searching for that father figure um, and, and being unable to kind of live up to, to that person because they always turn and then you know turn back but we've that's three out of four this time that we've you know iron giant um Titan Titan e. in this like the fathers are are gone in in those movies that is weird i i'm sure some i hope some psychologist <clears throat> is listening and can diagnose us in some fashion but i mean i i mean you had a great relationship with your father and i oh, have yeah. a great relationship with my father but it's just funny that you know you gravitate to something that you really don't have a whole lot of context for. But you, your dad's still alive, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. See, mine passed what two thousand four. So, I I can honestly say, even when my dad's not around, uh, I've always kind of looked out for that mentor or father figure when I when I didn't have my father. So, I I understand the attraction to it, and maybe that's why uh-huh. I like these films. To your point, had a great relationship with my father. And so it means something a little bit more now that he's passed where I'm like, oh yeah, I, I know what that's like, but yeah. I, I, I don't know. That's, a, that's a good question. I, I didn't think about it that way. <laughs> well, so, I thought about that when, you know, when the, when he's having that flashback of his dad leaving on the boat and yeah. which I kind of think that scene is a little bit unnecessary. Like we, we, the father's never around. We know that he probably, le- you know, he left. We didn't need a dramatic scene where the kids like begging for him to come back and the boat's leaving and it's just like nah son i'm out i'm out no i agree well this this movie has the trope of the bad guy turning a good guy and um 
I, I know we talked about it at Titan AE, like you hate that. You hate it when the good guy becomes the bad guy and then the bad guy then at the last minute becomes the good guy. But they, they do this in here. What makes it different? Because I believe the relationship that he, he does. So he's a pirate. So he's a bad guy. Right. He just happens to kind of establish this relationship with Jim that goes against his sort of pirate instincts. And he does care for Jim, even though he says he doesn't. He, that, that never changes throughout this movie. I think immediately when he meets Jim, there's something about him that he is immediately gravitates to and sees that he is, you know, a great kid and that doesn't change. Now his motivation to the audience changes, but he doesn't change who he is as a person. Um, he's always a pirate. He's been a pirate. He always will be a pirate. Um, he, just kind of uses Jim, but I think at that initial instinct is he was going to use Jim to get the treasure. Yes. But in doing so, he kind of fell in, he, he kind of loves the kid yeah. and he, he does to the very end that, that love never changes. And we see it at the end when he says, okay, Jim is more important than this treasure that I have been looking for my entire life. I'm going to let it, basically fall into this never ending hole and save Jim's life. Um, he would have done that at the beginning of the film as well. I, I don't um, know if you'd done it at the beginning of the film, not at I, the be not I, at the very beginning, but yeah. he would have done it. You know, there's that, a turning point, I think. Yeah. With that little montage, you can kind of tell, but when he is like explaining that, you know, he just said that stuff um, to Jim to, to make him believe it. To me, when he was saying that, I knew he was lying. Right. Like I, and it, you could kind of tell it in the performance that he didn't believe it, and so it's different than whatever that guy's name in Titan AE. You know, he comes on, and you were, I was immediately suspicious of that guy, and of course, I'm immediately suspicious of Silver too because he's a pirate. But I believe their relationship way more. Um, and yes, his his turn is, you know, good, bad, good. He as a person doesn't change. It's just what he is saying to the audience changes. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's different. I, I think the difference is that he acts as good, but the movie does something smart where you you have a character that delivers the map to him and says, you know, beware of the cyborg. And so Jim out of the gate knows that there's something wrong with Silver. And so I, I think what makes it different is in Titan AE, you know, the Bill Pullman character comes in as a good character and there's no question. This, you know, silver character comes in and there's question right out of the gate. Oh, Billy, Bo you're talking about Billy Bones. Yeah. Tells him to beware of the cyborg. Yep. Yeah. So you already know, I don't trust this cyborg and you start, you, you know, out of the gate that he's up to something. So I don't know if he's traditionally good, bad, good. It's almost like, He's bad and he's hiding it, but you see this character arc go through and you see him change. And there's there's a line and I can't remember how he says it, but you know Jim is asking him about well how what happened to your arm, what happened to your leg, and he basically you know just says, "Well, I I, I paid a cost for something and I I hope it's worth it." And at the end of the movie, you find out that you know he it it is worth it because it's not about the treasure; it is that relationship with him, and he's kind of using that to save Jim. Yep. So it I I'm really amazed at how good this script is 
because to your point, it takes a traditional trope of, well, here's your good, bad, good, and it layers in some complexity in the beginning, and it and you have this character arc occur right in front of your eyes, and you buy it, and you believe it, and the voice performances are so good, and um, it, it takes this trope, and it kind of turns it on its head a little bit, and you're, you're in for it. You're like, you totally buy into it. Yeah, and, and of course, like, we see hints that even when Jim's escaping, they're going to fire that cannon at him. And, you know, he plays it off as, oh, you're going to destroy the map. But he didn't want them to, you know, kill Jim yeah. right then and there. Like he he was doing things to, to save him before he actually saved him as well. So, um, yeah. And Jim makes a choice at the end of the film and you <clears throat> believe that choice as well, too. So, yeah, you know, and they have like these great character moments, even at the end where they're kind of he's getting on that boat at the very end and they have that moment. And you're it's a very like emotional like goodbye and yeah. and you believe these two characters care for each other. Um, that's hard to do for me for animated. Like it really is just because I'm, I'm watching two cartoons emote that isn't like there's that, just that disconnect with animated characters. I just don't have, or I have. Um, but here I, I believed every second that these two animated characters cared for each other. So that's really hard to do. No, I agree. And then the other thing I was going to mention was this movie's, pretty darn funny. I mean, obviously it's got some of the childish humor, the flatulent alien, but the other, the other thing I laughed really out loud was this whole sequence where Dr. Dobbler says, dang it, Jim, I'm an astronomer, astronomer, not a doctor doctor. Well, I am a doctor. Yeah, I am a doctor, but not that kind of doctor. I have a doctorate. It's not the same thing. You can't help people with a doctorate. You sit there and you're his whole monologue when he's taking the Star Trek, uh, Star Trek, Star Trek quote yeah. and turns it into this thing. I, I was laughing pretty hard. And then you're right. I mean, Martin Short does steal a lot of scenes, but I love that whole sequence of him saying, I'm, I'm starting to see the life pass between my or in front of my eyes. At least I think it's my life. Was I ever dancing with an android named Lupe? <laughs> he's just going off on these tangents. And he's really funny in this thing. I mean, it is a hard thing to do to introduce a character in late second act, early third act. And you care for that character by the end of the third act. It's almost impossible. It, like it, they, you, that is like storytelling 101. You do not do that. You do not introduce a character that late. And I know what they're doing. I know they're trying to tap into that secret sauce of Aladdin by saying, okay, let's take a really sort of zany comedian and give him this sidekick role and let him go. But it, even though you kind of sense or feel that it's a little bit of a copy of, of the formula that they did in Atlanta uh, in Atlanta, Aladdin, I can't talk tonight. Um, <laughs> it, it still works and it works because the story is strong. The character belongs at that moment. And I think Martin short, does his best at being Martin Short versus trying to sort of copy the energy of a Robin Williams. Well, and you know, like Ben is what's that character's name? Benjamin Gunn in the book. Yeah. Who would like become crazy because he was on the island all by himself. So, you know, it makes sense in the story, but again, you you just don't or Miss Piggy. I think Miss Piggy was that character in Puppet, <laughs> but uh you just don't introduce a character that late because the audience is already invested in all these other characters, but I really liked Ben a lot. And like, I wanted him to find his memory and I wanted him to have closure at the end of this. And he does. And it all pays off really quick. I mean, he's in the film 
for the last half an hour. But um, my only bummer is, is like, he's such a good character. I wish he was in it more is, but you know, would that, would that have gotten old Would his stick gotten old? If he was in the movie that long. Yeah. I think if he was in longer, I think everybody would have been like, wow, they're really trying to redo Aladdin here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it works. And I, I don't know. I, I, I thought the humor was fantastic. I was surprised at how much I laughed and it wasn't just at Martin Short's antics, but there's a lot of stuff going on in this film and just so many things going on in the background too. Yeah. I mean, again, all the character design and just the boats, like there's scenes where they're running and the camera is in these tight spaces and it's like rotating and yeah. just stuff you can't do, but they do it in this movie and it, like the camera work in this movie is top notch. Like it is literally a James Cameron film. But again, like I, I know that's what they're going for and they nailed it. Yeah, I agree. What other notes do you have? That basically this killed, you know, hand-drawn animation for seven years. I mean, that, that is a, that is a feat. That is a feat. That's great. Well, and what surprises me is, I guess I could understand given when it was released, what it was going up against sort of the cultural zeitgeist at that time, all being Harry Potter, why this wouldn't do financially. But I am amazed at how many critics sort of panned this. I really would have thought the critical response reception would have been much higher on this thing. Yeah. I think this is a hidden gem when it comes to the Disney sort of filmography it's up there, man. Like it is really up there for me now. Like it, like, do I like this more than Hercules? Probably so. Like, do I like it? It's not as good as like, to me, like Lion King and Aladdin, but it's, it's up there, man. Like I, I really enjoy it. I think the adventure, it it nails that adventure aspect better than a lot of those other Disney films. Oh, I, I, simple. Yeah. For pure adventure, Disney films, live action or cartoon this is top notch if this had a space llama that was voiced by david spade it would have probably been the greatest animated film ever made it probably dethrone iron giant or aladdin and all those that's the only thing it's missing it's just a bummer we're not going to get anything like this ever again yeah well this is because this is the the time where disney had to take their lumps and they're not going back to this because anytime they would say oh we're going to redo treasure planet it's going to be, oh, remember that 2002 bomb where Disney had to lost $100 million? That's this movie. Yeah. You know? Like, well, they don't want to have a headline like that. Yeah. They obviously went to these two directors because they believed in the project and gave them money. Well, I, <laughs> they didn't really believe in the project. Well, okay. They kind of did. They took a chance on it, right? Yeah. They took a chance. I don't see Disney taking <clears throat> And their track like record this. at the time, you're like, that's fine. Like, yeah, yeah sure. These guys are money. They're money in the bank. Well, in comparison, if you look at Treasure Planet in relation to all the other films they did, it fits perfectly within that filmography. I mean, if if you're sitting there going, I loved Aladdin, I love Little Mermaid, Great Mouse Detective, Prince of the Frog. Yeah, those are musicals. But in terms of what they do for animated film, in terms of quality and everything else, you know, to me, if it's like, hey, the Little Mermaid is an A plus, Treasure Planet is an A. It, it may not be top tier, the way that Little Mermaid is or even Aladdin, but it's just right under there. So. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I would say this is tier two. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And it's, it's so good. Well, I, I, 
I think it's time for the question, but it's pretty obvious, right? So, so for context, just yeah. just real quick, uh, the budget for Aladdin mm-hmm. was twenty eight million dollars. It made half a million do- or half a billion dollars. So, <laughs> Mustard and Clements did just fine. Yeah, they're you know, fine. This hundred million dollars that they lost for Disney, they they made that in spades with Aladdin and Little Mermaid, and you know Aladdin still continues to make money today. So it's fine. I, I'm totally sure fine. from a retirement standpoint, they're doing great. They got that gold watch. They got a gold watch and they retired. Don't worry. Yeah. So. There's, there's no state. Well, obviously because Disney came back, you know, even though it was seven years, I mean, they gave him another project, right? Well, and Moana, I think made a billion dollars. Yeah. So they're, they're gold star members in the VIP retirement section. Oh, sorry. $645 million for Moana, but still. That's almost, I mean, six hundred. If you round up, that's a billion dollars. It's a billion. Yes, <laughs> in my in my math world, they made yeah. they made a billion dollars. Okay, Brad. The question is: Treasure Planet a bomb? It is not a bomb. Absolutely not a bomb. This is. Uh, it's funny because we did not plan this, but to do this after Titan AE makes you kind of like Titan AE way less. And I already <laughs> didn't like Titan AE very much at all. But this like outclasses it in every possible way. So if you have a choice, you're like, okay, I want to watch one of these early 2000 hand-drawn CGI films. You do um, Treasure Planet 100 times out of 100. Atlantis, you know, if you're a little curious because it's Michael J. Fox, maybe, but this one is even way better than that as well. So this is the best of the bunch. Um, It is a very underrated, underappreciated Disney film that needs to be, we kind of need to have a, I have a discussion about this film and, and where it needs to be in the Pantheon. Cause it's, it's, it's up there. Oh, so. I agree. And I, I do have one final question for you now that you keep mentioning Titan AE. So Titan AE comes out around, you know, same time. And one of the things that it does is it doesn't have a musical sequence, but it has a music montage in it. And so your terminology at that point was Titan AE was the introduction of fart rock. Uh-huh. Because of those bands. So in this film, we get uh, Goo Goo Dolls frontman John Resnick and BB Mac. They do a couple of songs, right? So I'm Still Here, which is Jim's theme, and Always Know Where You Are. I, I guess real quick for you, Brad, do, does the does Goo Goo Dolls or do these songs count as fart rock? No. I mean, I'm not a Goo Goo Dolls fan, but it is those two songs are better than anything that's on Titan A. And it's not even close. Okay. Um, I, I like, I, I kind of liked the uh, the theme, Jim's theme, and the outro, and all that stuff. So, uh, the music didn't take me out of it like it did Titan A. It's not lit singing some fart rock anthem that I never want to hear again. So, okay, well, I, like I if love, I heard that song yeah. on the radio, I'd be like, oh, this is totally fine. Yeah, I love Goo Goo Dolls, but I mean, I also admitted to liking Creed too. So, yeah, yeah my musical taste is all over the place. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm I'm gonna agree with you. This thing is not a bomb. I concur with everything you said. For anybody who loves Disney films and this is a blind spot on your list, go and correct it. I I had so much fun with this thing. I can't wait to watch it again. I'm so crushed that that art of Treasure Planet is so expensive. I I am. It's now I'm looking out for it at some garage sale or book sale or something of that nature. And if I come across at a decent price, I'm I'm snagging that thing. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a beautiful looking film. I. I, I guess my next question is, if you were to rank these four, how would you rank them from like Iron Giant, uh, Treasure Planet? What? How, how would it go? Go Iron Giant, Treasure Planet. Oh. 
probably Final Fantasy just because I like that. Yeah, I like that universe better, and it's doesn't have the fart rock in it. Oh, and then Titan, then Titan A. I'm almost with you. I I do Iron Giant, Treasure Planet, Titan A, and then Final Fantasy. Yeah, the the last two are the the cliff is very it's it's a big cliff <laughs> after big cliff. after Treasure Planet. So yeah, and um, I don't. I'm with you. This is the same film as Titan A for all intent and purpose. It's way better. I don't know if I dislike Titan A any. Uh, I. I don't know. I don't know, man. Once you like compare them, you're like, oh boy, that's trash. I'll say this now. Like I always enjoyed revisiting Titan Eve or once in a while, just because like a, you know, creature design, the things that I said that I liked about it. But now that I have this in my life, I don't know if I would go back and watch Titan AE. Yeah. It fills if, that void. I, I would, I would go and do treasure planet because it would, it would do everything that I would want out of Titan AE. And I mean, if you want a good double bill, like iron giant treasure planet is a great double bill. That is, now that you say that, that is like perfect. Yeah. That would yeah. be a perfect drive-in movie night too. Not You're welcome. It. That's great. Uh, well, dude, that's that's the end of it, right? We're, we're done with the yeah, site. We're, now, we're still we, talking. We know in. we have another week of August, but we're going to slowly transition because we, we can't talk about sci-fi animated films for five weeks in a row. So Well, and plus we've, we've got this other project that we're doing weekly. You want to talk about that real quick? Because that's sci-fi yeah. animation. Yeah, so we are doing uh, Not a Bomb Watches, Cowboy Bebop. We have done the first four episodes, and people have reached out and said, hey, you guys are doing great, and I appreciate that as something that I wanted to do for a long time and wanted Choi to, to watch with me, and it uh, it's going really well. I That show is holding up quite well. Today, we actually got a release date for the Netflix live-action um, show, which is in November, so we might just roll, roll our Cowboy Bebop uh, show into that as well. We'll, we'll see, but um, yeah, it's 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 fun, man. Um, you're right. After that fourth episode, there's nothing more I wanted to do than to watch like eight more in a row. Yeah. But um, we're watching two a week. So if you're playing along with us um, this week, we will be watching five and six. Um, so yeah, so play along with us there if you want to. Um, Cowboy Bebop is available everywhere. It's always on sale on Amazon. Literally, do not spend over thirty dollars on the Blu-ray set because Target had it, is, it for like twenty-five dollars the other day. Yeah, it's yeah. always on sale. It's always on sale. Yeah. So now we're not going to announce our next. Is it, so we're doing another theme where we do four movies. But like you said, we have one more week this month, and we're going to take a pause. And one of the favorite things I like about us just doing this little show for the 10 people that listen is we, we every once in a while try and pick something and introduce people to it and say, okay, now the rules of the podcast were that it had to bomb theatrically or <laughs> bomb critically. And so we're, we have some fun with those rules. So this time last year, we went through all of the Ip Man films. And we came up with a way of, you know, justifying that. And quite honestly, and domestically, they didn't do well. They did pretty well, but you know, we whatever. Cheated. Let's just be <laughs> yeah. honest. We cheated. Okay. Cause we it's wanted to show. talk about it's our, it's our show. Yeah. So this one, it's kind of a cheat, but it's not really a cheat. So it's never been released in the U S as a matter of fact, you can't find a DVD copy of it. You can't find a Blu-ray copy of it. Uh, never played theatrically to my knowledge. 
However, so our audience for this this uh, episode no, is going to be huge. <laughs> it's it is going to be huge because you can watch it right now on Amazon Prime for free. So if you have Amazon Prime, you can play along, and I'm going to tell you right now, you will want to play along because if you have not seen 2017's The Outlaws, you need to correct that right now. It is a Korean film. It stars one Don Lee. Now, I'm going to mess up his Korean name, but he his real name is actually Ma Dong Sok, but everybody will know him as Don Lee. Now, why he's important is a lot of people who are uh, film fans may have seen him in a little film called Train to Busan, the Korean mm-hmm. zombie film. So he's the big muscular dude that like punches zombies left and right. But everybody's going to know about him this winter because he is one of the Eternals in Marvel's The Eternals. So that's sort of his big U.S. debut. Now, this guy is huge in Korea. Like, I cannot – he is huge. And if you had listened to an earlier episode that we did when Cameron, my son, came on – and one of the things that I asked him was like, who's who's your favorite Asian ac- actor right now? I assume he was going to say Donnie Yen or, or Jackie Chan or something, <laughs> but his favorite Asian actor is, is Don Lee. So this film, just to give you a little taste of it, it's actually based on a true story. And it's basically talking about um, the sole detective's attempts to keep peace between two Chinese Korean gangs battling over turf in a neighborhood. And what happens is this sociopath serial killer comes in to Korea in the Korean Chinatown and starts creating all this havoc and the police have to arrest him and his entire gang in one night. And if they don't do it in one night, they're going to escape across the border. And it is fantastic. And we'll talk about this in detail, but if you like, you know, mission impossible films, one of the latest Mission Impossible films may have stolen a sequence out of this film for its action sequences. We'll talk about that next week. But yeah, everybody's got to play along for this one, all 10 of you. You got to go to Amazon Prime and watch The Outlaws. It's free. If you don't have Amazon Prime, you can rent it from Amazon. Um, Brad, our, you don't own a copy. So I bought the Korean Blu-ray. <laughs> I, don't, I don't own a copy, but... Yeah, okay. I'll watch it on Amazon. <laughs> and we're going to have some guests. We're going to try something different next week. We may have a few guests on the show uh, because this is one that as soon as we put it out there and said, hey, we're going to talk about 2017's The Outlaws, um, we had a, a few people instantly raise their hand and go, oh, I want to be on that show. And Brad and I are too nice. We can't say no. So Yeah, um, yeah we we have our staple of guests that we we like to reach out to and let them know. But you know, there are times when it's – we want to have a special Troy and Brad episode like this one. But, you know, for the most part, we like having, having guests on. And this was one of those ones where it was like a lot of people raised their hand and I was like, okay, well, we're not going to say no. Yeah. We're going to have a party with this one. Full house. And then um, we're going to get into September. We have an entire theme for that month that we're going to share at our next episode. That one's going to be, I I don't, that one's going to be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be super interesting, but uh, Brad, how does, how does like, Everybody reach out to us, send us feedback, uh, their suggestions. We we actually started putting the list together for 2022. Um, we've gotten so many great recommendations for this year. I know we have we have like everything planned out, um, which is awesome. And most yeah. of, most of the stuff that is coming up are suggestions we've received. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, one month we're going to do films that you and I have never seen. So like, there's a lot of things coming up that I'm really excited about. Um, if you have suggestions though, um, we don't mind shifting things around. If something tickles our fancy brain scan was one of those, um, that we just, wait, wait, no brainstorm brain scan. Is that stupid? Was that that Isn't Edward that the, Furlong? It's movie? the Edward Furlong okay. horror movie. Um, brainstorm. We did that with, so, you know, don't be afraid to send a suggestion. That is not a bomb pod at gmail.com. Or you can send us a message on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, we do monitor those um, daily. Uh, people do reach out. Um, and yeah, let us know what you think about the show. We are, we don't really talk about our reviews on iTunes very much, but we're like dangerously close to 200, Troy, like 14 away from 200. Um, I want to do something special when we get to 200. So, if people can leave us a review and let us know they did uh, maybe when, if you're the 200th review, we might do something special for you. So, you know, yeah, we may do that. something for like 195 through 205. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I don't care. <laughs> Cause we're, you know, we've got a crazy amount of reviews, but anyway, I'll start giving um, away Brad's Blu-ray collection. I let's do it. You're the, I'm sure <laughs> dude. So I was, I pre-ordered, I listen. I did the Troy thing. I pre-ordered, of course, I pre-ordered Inglorious Bastards with 4K that comes out in October. And I literally was looking and I'm like, I have four copies on Blu-ray. There's like a 10th anniversary one. There's the one like, I'm like, but of course I'm going to. And then you send me that thing about Grindhouse today is like this huge special edition. And I'm like, okay, I'm getting that. And it's like, I'm ready for Tarantino's films to come to 4K. Um, You know, the last few have. um, So there's like, when they all come out on 4K, then there's going to be this deluxe Tarantino director's box set that has them all in 4K in some I, nice. I, I wonder casing. how the rights on some of that stuff is going to work, though, because you know Miramax and all that stuff. I, I you know when they go to different people, you know it's sometimes not as easy as you think. So oh, I'm yeah. I'm hoping that we get you know all after he's done, we get all ten films in this huge you know, box set or whatever, but I, I'm telling you right now, between now and October, I am broke. I mean, just the amount of stuff that's coming out in special edition, 4k yeah. things for the first time on Blu-ray, uh, just all of those boutique labels between arrow, um, Severin. I mean, it, it's crazy. It, it really is crazy. And then shoot criterions finally dipping into jet. I, I, so you got, I got those once sets upon a time in China and yeah. I got, and 88 uh, Films is releasing tons of Shaw Brothers stuff, and then you've got the Shaw Brothers. But we're going to get divorced. Between now and December, I'm probably getting divorced. So The Shaw Brothers box set, though, was that way was cheaper a, than I thought it was going to be. So that was a that no-brainer. Was a no-brainer. Yeah. If you, uh, if you love kung fu films, you need to order that Shaw Brothers box set because the amount of movies that it comes in it and for the 13, price of it. 13, right? Yeah. Because yeah, it ends up being $10 of film, which is stupid. crazy. That is stupid. Um, but yeah, so in any like one of the ones I did was the Dune, which yeah. I just heard Sammy talk about on uh, Gentleman's Guide, and it's like I, I I have a really soft spot for that film. I know it's a mess, but it is one of the most beautiful films ever directed. But yep. it is an absolute mess. Um, I can't wait to see that again on 4K. So anyway, well, well we buy thing, a lot of stuff. Yes, and before before we sign off, I do want to put a shout out out there. So. Uh, we've, we've had a lot of the people from this podcast, the VHS files podcast come on the show and Josh is a, is a great friend. They're all great friends, um, of ours, but Josh recently 
has started for his podcast and on YouTube, they have a VHS files podcast, YouTube channel. Now he's done sort of an unboxing video, one on his favorite vampire films, which is really good. Everybody, if you're listening, go search out the VHS files podcast on YouTube watch josh's stuff he is a fantastic guy the the guy he's just, very he's, good on camera he i is told really him like good. sincerely very good on camera yeah. i i was impressed it's my new favorite thing to watch and so i'm patiently waiting for um all of his reviews on the jackie you would, chan because stuff because he you know he shouted out to you of course well, he i got left so off, many jackie but... chan films i need him to just do a jackie chan episode now uh but yeah we we love that podcast and we really want to you know, make sure everybody knows about that channel and checks it out. Please go listen to Sammy and Todd at the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, um, Zach and Zoe at the Back Look Cinema Podcast. Who else am I missing, Brad? I mean, Night of the Living Podcast. Um, yep. yep. There, there's so many good ones out there. And, uh, you know, as I always say, I, I don't know what time you're listening to this, morning, afternoon, evening. I hope you're having an awesome day. We had a lot of fun talking about Treasure Planet. We are going to have more fun. We're going to have a huge party talking about 2017's The Outlaws with one of my favorite actors, Don Lee. So I hope you're playing along. Go check it out, Amazon Prime. And with that, we'll check you next week. Don't lose your head.